Good morning, everybody. Are your hearts open to receive something this morning? Good. Then receive this. When the disciples came back to Jesus, they were full of joy because of what the Holy Spirit had done through them. Don't let this mission week be exclusive to the students. Don't let them be the only ones that come back with joy in their heart because of what the Lord has done through them this week. My challenge is to everybody. This week, put your boots to your streets. Invite your neighbors. Talk to your friends. Talk to your work colleagues. Share something of Jesus with them this week. Invite them to church. The harvest is plentiful and it's all around you. All you have to do is put yourself in the way of the Holy Spirit and let him lead you. And you will all come to church next week with joy of what God has done. Are your hearts open to receive that? Good. So students, you're going to smash it. The rest of the church are also going to smash it as well. My name is Tim Jones. Uh, It's been a long time since I've been here. And actually, I forgot how big the uh, lectern is. Um, I'm based in Cardiff. Um, I work with uh, my father and other ministries, and um, we are extending the kingdom of God on the Lord's behalf around the world, preaching the gospel wherever we go and seeing people saved. And it's a wonderful privilege to be a part of that ministry with him. And I'm really, really grateful for the invitation that you've extended to me this morning uh, to come up here. It was an early, early start. I set off and um, stopped for 20 minutes for a nap and had a lovely cup of coffee on the way in. And um, it's good to be here with you. But we've had a really busy year this year. It's at this time of year that I begin to look back over the year and what I've actually accomplished or what the Lord has done through me. And it's been a busy time. I'm looking forward to having a few days of rest at some point. Uh, But most recently, uh, for those of you that were at World Watch, uh, most recently, well, not most recently because I was in Norway last week, but before that, I was just in Brazil. And I shared a little bit about what God was doing there. And it's been a wonderful transformation in the city of Petropolis where your your giving has helped the church outreach into the city to see the city restored after a devastating landslide, uh, to see people getting saved and healed and brought into the church. It was great. And uh, what I neglected to mention was we had a closing ceremony for the 800 people that we were helping because they were about to transition out of the project and we were about to bring 800 new people in. Many of them had given their lives to Jesus already. But on the final day, over 120 of them gave their lives to Jesus. Over 120 of them started their new new life with Jesus. Now, for me, that got me very, very excited. Because I have a little competition with the Lord at the beginning of the year. I have a little prayer in my heart. It's a secret number. Now, evangelists like numbers. And I have a little number in my heart that I say to the Lord in January. And I say, Lord... I'd like to see a 1,000 people saved this year. I'd like to see a 1,000 people saved this year. And I was 100 people short when I got to Brazil. The Lord, he is the Lord of the much more. So he gave me 120, and we've still got a month to go. 1,000, over 1,000 people have given their lives to Jesus this year. And it's such a privilege that the Lord would enable me, just, I'm just a guy, Enable me to be a part of that. It's been a bumper year. And when Dave asked me, he wrote to me and said, uh, would you come and talk to the church about the, uh, the, the role or the person of the evangelist? Um, I thought, well, yeah, that would be exciting. Could you come and tell us about what it, how it works and what you know? And I thought, well, yeah, that would be exciting because I'm still trying to figure that out myself, you know. And he wrote to me a few months ago, and as I've been going, I've been asking God, you know, well, what do I say to these people? Because the evangelist is just a person. 
And that's what the Holy Spirit said to me. He said, well, I want you to tell them about your journey as an evangelist. I said, well, I can't just tell them about my journey as an evangelist. He said, yes, you can. I said, well, I do need a bit of Bible. I need a bit of Bible. And thankfully, he's given me some Bible as well to give to you and a conclusion that I hope will help you at the end. So I hope that you don't mind, but I'm going to share with you what it's like to be an evangelist or what it's like for an evangelist to figure out what an evangelist is. Is that okay? And then together we can learn because these are things that I've, I've been talking with the Holy Spirit on and um, learning and looking back over the, over the years that I've been involved in this. Um, so uh, we're going to go way back in time. So if you've got some popcorn, get ready. Make yourself comfortable. Sit back a little bit. Stretch out your legs because now you're going to hear my life story. <laughs> I was about 11 years old when I was in my, in my house in West Yorkshire. And uh, my dad, you've already heard, his name's Kerry Jones. He's a ministry. And um, I knew all about ministries when I was very, very young. I could tell a ministry what a ministry looked like from a mile away. You see, all ministries were thick gray trousers, black shoes, a black, black, uh, a black or navy blue blazer, a white shirt, and a red tie. So whenever men came into the house, I could tell that they were ministries because of the way that they were dressed, because they all dressed exactly the same. And so on this occasion, when I was about, about 11 years old, I was in my house, and um, there were ministries in the house, and they were talking very loudly, some of them American, you know, walking around the house and talking loudly. And one of them said to my dad, as he walked past through the living room, he said, the problem is, Carrie, nobody wants to be the evangelist. I thought, great, I don't want to be the evangelist. If they're saying nobody wants to be the evangelist, then I don't want to be the evangelist. Great. And that little seed, I mean, obviously, it was a, a, a sentence taken out of context of the whole conversation, but as a young man, as a little boy, as they went through, I thought, nobody wants to be the evangelist. I thought, great, I don't want to be the evangelist. I'll tick that one off on my list. Fast forward, um, I was, well, my life was a mess, and many of you will know my testimony. I'm not here to share my testimony with you this morning, but I was wonderfully saved by Jesus. He took me from a terrible, terrible, terrible place, and he completely transformed my life the day I gave it to him, and he set me on an adventure with him, and I was in Manchester, and um, I was serving in the church, and I was seeing some people giving their lives to Jesus, you know, like, just like every other Christian does. I was at work, and I'd tell people about Jesus, and eventually they would, they would ask, how do I become a Christian, and they, and they would get saved, and I would invite people to church, and, and they would get saved, you know, because that's what Christians do. That's what normal Christians do. They tell people about Jesus. They can't help but talk about the life that they've been, that they've been changed from and the life that they now have. That's the Christian life. That's all of us here. But I was sat in my apartment in Manchester, and uh, I was working from home, and I'm looking at uh, a picture that I have on, on, on the wall in the lounge, and I, and I have my laptop on my lap, and I say, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for this wonderful job that I've got. Thank you for this beautiful wife that I'm going to have. She was, we were engaged at the time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But God, if the life that I'm living right now isn't the life that you want for me, you've really got to tell me because I really enjoy this life that I've got right now. And immediately my telephone rang. It was one of those old-fashioned telephones. You know the ones that are in the wall? They called it a landline. Anybody still got one of those? So I had to get out of my seat, walk across the room, and pick up this phone. I said, hello? Obviously, you have to pick up the phone to have a conversation. I don't, if you just leave it ringing, it... 
So I picked up the phone and I said hello, and this man spoke to me on the other end of the line. He said, hello, is that Timothy Jones? I said, yeah. He said, my name is Arne Skagen, and I'm calling you from Norway. Now, I've got no idea who Arne Skagen is. I don't know how he got my phone number. It's ex-directory. But I'm curious anyway. I said, hello, Arne Skagen from Norway. What can I do for you? He said, I have a message from God for you. Well, that opened up my ears. I said, okay, what's the message from God? He said, God said that the life that you're living right now isn't the life that I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to be an evangelist, and you will go into the nations, and you will see hundreds of thousands of people saved. You will see the kingdom of God extended, and you'll equip and build the church. And then he told me lots of other things, and I was just like, so I hung up the phone, Thank you very much, Arna. Obviously, so bye-bye. Bye. Hung up the phone. I did what any other young man would do when God speaks to you like that. I rang my mum. <laughs> I said, Mom, this guy called Arna Skarn just called me. I don't know who he is. He sounds foreign. I think he said he was from Norway. Um, but he's just said a lot of things to me, and, and, and um, I don't want to be the evangelist. But actually, what he said to me was, was amazing. And if it is true, then I want it to be true. But how do I know that he's not a crackpot? She said, well, I know Arna, and he is an evangelist. And um, he does move in this peculiar way with the Holy Spirit and has words of knowledge and all of this kind of stuff. But if you want to know if it's true, go to your bedroom, close the door, get down on your knees by the side of your bed, and ask your father to make it true. Now, that was weird because I've never got down on my knees by the side of my bed and done the, the whole prayer stance, but I figured she knows best because she's my mom. So I said, thanks, mom. I'm going to go check this out now. And I went to my bedroom. I closed the door. I got down on my knees by the side of the bed. I closed my eyes. I ad adopted the posture that you see in all of the books because I thought that was the right way to do it. And I said, Father, this guy from Norway just rang me up. I don't know if you heard. But he just said some amazing things to me, and I really don't know how to handle it. But I really need to know if it's true. And all I can just say is, it was as though God turned up in that bedroom. And he confirmed every word. And the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit was incredible. And I got up off the floor knowing that, um, and, the God, and God said this, I'll let you in on a secret. God said this to me, he said, I'm going to send you lots of men who are going to teach you lots of things, but you're always going to know that their voice is my voice, and the lessons that you learn will be from the school of the Spirit. You'll never have to doubt again the voice that comes to you, because you'll, you'll always know it's mine. And I'm so grateful to the Lord for that, because it's helped me so much in life. So I didn't know what an evangelist was, but now I am an evangelist, I guess. And uh, I had to figure it all out for myself. But the only evangelist I knew was this guy, Arne Skagen, in Norway. So I got on an airplane, and I flew to Norway, and I went and spent a weekend with Arne Skagen. I figured, well, you're the evangelist. I've got to know what an evangelist is, so you can teach me everything I need to know about evangelism or what, it, or what an evangelist is. And we spent time together, and he, he's terrible conversation. You know, I sat for hours in a room on my own just watching him and watching TV and we, he didn't do any evangelism. We didn't go out on the streets. We didn't go door knocking. We didn't go to crusades. We didn't do all of these different things. He just sat there. 
all the time. And then we'd go out, and suddenly he'd start moving in words of knowledge and talking to people and opening people up, and, and people would give their lives to Jesus. And, and when we came over to the UK, he would do the same thing. He'd just be quiet. We wouldn't have much conversation, but then he'd go along. And I said, what is it about you? He said, I'm just listening to the Holy Spirit. I'm training my ear to hear the Holy Spirit. I want to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit tells me things about people that I'm going to meet or about, he said, did you know, Tim, the Holy Spirit gave me your phone number. The Holy Spirit gave me your name. The Holy Spirit told me what day to call you and gave me a very specific time on what to call you, uh, a, a very specific time of day in which to call you. And he told me the message that I was to give you. He said, I wasn't just getting that message that morning. I was holding that message for a few days until the time came on the clock that I was to call you. Do you know, if he called me a minute early, if he was disobedient, it would have meant nothing to me. But the timing of it was perfect for my life. So I thought, well, I've got to train myself in hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. I thought that was what the evangelist did. And so for years, and well, months and years, I, I spent time trying to be like Arnus Gargan. And it worked. I could sit at home and I'd listen to the, for the Holy Spirit. I'd read the Word and I'd, I'd travel around and I'd look at things and I'd hear the Holy Spirit and I carried a little notebook around me and I'd write down all the things that the Holy Spirit was telling me. And then at the right moment, I would be able to see somebody. I'd go, oh, this replies to you. And I'd give it to them and they'd give their life to Jesus. Or I'd be in a meeting and the Holy Spirit would say something and reveal something that I'd already heard during the week and I'd, I'd make an appeal and people, people would give their lives to Jesus. I thought, this is fantastic. This is what the evangelist is. Week after week in that church, we would see people saved every week. Every time I'd sit there in the meeting, the Holy Spirit would say, make the appeal, and I'd get up, and I'd go to the front, and I'd go to the elders first, because I'm learning. I'd say, can I make an appeal? They'd say, yes, you can make an appeal, and I'd make an appeal, and somebody would respond, and it was wonderful. The church was about 450 members. At that time, it grew to over 700 people in, in that time. But then I began to notice something, that whenever I got up to go to the elders to ask permission to speak on the microphone... There were some other young people in the church who were a little bit more confident than me. And they'd see me getting up, going to the elders. So they'd think, oh, he's going to make an appeal for salvation. I'm going to go make the appeal. And they'd get up and they'd go to the microphone before I could get there and they'd make the appeal and somebody would get saved. And then I'd go up and I'd make the appeal and somebody else would get saved. Yeah? And so over this time, the church began to move in this way of the supernatural. People were, were hearing the Holy Spirit, and they were making appeals. They were inviting their friends. They were talking into people's lives, and people were getting saved. And, and suddenly, I noticed that my, not my hearing the Holy Spirit hadn't changed, but my effectiveness, personal effectiveness in the church began to dwindle a little bit. My focus began to change a little bit, and I thought, well, maybe that's Maybe that method isn't the way of the, of the evangelist. Maybe that's not it, but it worked. The church continued to grow. The church and the people began to move in the ways of the Holy Spirit in this way. So I, uh, I, I, quit my, I went to apply to a Bible college and went to Bible school with my, my wife. We went, moved down to Cardiff, and I wanted to be equipped in the Word and uh, to learn more about well, just learn more about God, because quite frankly, all I was seeing was people saved, but I didn't have a clue about everything that's in the book. And I went down there to the, to the Bible school, and at the end of the Bible school, right at the end, an apostle came into the classroom, Chandra County, you're, you're going to go see him in a few days' time. He came into our classroom, and he came to me, and he said, Timothy, will you come to India when you finish Bible school? And I thought, yeah, 
of course I'll come to India. I'm, I'm on fire. I'm excited. I want to. I want to do things for God. Yes, of course I'll come to India. And I and I, at the end of the Bible school um, that April, I got on a plane and I flew to India to be with Chandra Kant there. And um, he didn't talk to me. We sat in rooms. He didn't say anything to me. I didn't say anything to him. It was all a little bit weird, a little bit awkward. And then after two days, um, he said, right, we're going to go to a conference. I said, okay, well, let's go to the conference. So we drove for hours and hours and hours. And we, he said, it's a bit like a Bible week. I said, okay. He said, yeah, there's going to be a, a, a lot of people there. Um, the, you have to pay to go to the conference. Um, but, but also, um, if you want to go to the conference for free, you are allowed to come for free if you brought an unsaved friend along with you. I said, oh, okay, that sounds like a really good plan. So we arrive at this, uh, this conference, and he gives me this badge. He says, put this badge on. So I put this badge on. It's all in Hindi. On the, on, it's all written in Hindi. I still don't know what it, well, I do now. But he said, wear this badge. I said, oh, great. Okay, thank you very much. He said, come with me. We began to walk into this field, and I've never seen so many people. We walked, to, we walked all the way to the front, and there's just fields and fields of people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. He said, come with me. He said, you can sit on the stage with me. So we walked up onto this platform, and I'm looking out over a sea of people. He said, how many people do you think are there? I said, I, I haven't got a clue. He said, tonight there's about 45,000 people here. I said, wow. So I just felt so privileged that this, this man of God would invite me to sit on the stage with him. And uh, so I sat on the stage, and of course, I, the Holy Spirit didn't give me the gift of interpretation, so I had no idea what was being said during the meeting. But it was a really good meeting, lots of, uh, lots of <laughs> clapping and all of this kind of thing. And um, I was a little bit confused by it all, but very, very privileged and, and grateful to have been invited to sit on the platform at, the Bible, at his Bible conference. So we went off the stage, and I spent night, the, the night in my room on my own, not talking to anybody because I didn't understand anything. And the following day, um, Chandrakan said, right, we're going to go back down to the, the, the conference. I said, okay, off we go again. And we walked down, walked through the crowd, and people are beginning to shake my hand as I'm walking through the crowd. And I'm thinking, oh, they're very nice, very kind. And we walked up onto the platform, and I'm stood on the platform, and I just had a thought, you know what? I don't really want to sit on the platform. So I said, Chandrakan, do you mind if I don't sit up here with you today, I'm very, very grateful. I'm, on, I'm very honored that you'd let me sit with you. But do you mind if I don't sit on the platform with you? Perhaps I could sit down there where your wife is, Neelam, and she could translate for me so I can hear what's going on with the meeting. And he said, he looked at me, he said, uh, oh, no. He said, there's 70,000 people here tonight. He said, and your badge says guest speaker. He walked over to the microphone, he picked up the microphone, and, and, and in, his, in his own language, he introduced me as an evangelist from the UK who was going to bring the word of God in that moment. And I can't, I, I'd love to say, oh yeah, I'm ready for this, but I was shaking, terrified, not knowing what on earth has just happened and how on earth this is going to play out. But the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit came. And I began to talk about the life of Jesus, how he died for their sins, 
how he was buried and three days later he was rose again from the dead, how he spent time with his disciples and promised them the Holy Spirit. And then as he ascended into heaven, after he ascended into, the, into heaven, the Holy Spirit came and anointed and baptized the disciples and radically changed them so that they could change the world. And then I preached preachers, Peter's message that, they, that in order to be saved, you need to repent and be baptized. And at the end, we made the appeal. I'm still shaking on the inside. <laughs> But we made an appeal, and Chandrakant came up behind me. He knew what was coming, and he said, don't call them forward. We'll have a stampede. So I said, okay. So I said, if you, want to give your, if you are ready to give your life to Jesus, I want to ask you to stand right where you are. And nothing happened. And then the translator finished, and thousands of people began to stand at right where they were. I then said, if, you have, if your friend has now stood up, if you have brought them along this evening, will you stand up as well? And thousands more stood up. And we prayed a prayer of repentance. And then I just asked, Lord Jesus, you are the only one who can baptize in fire and the Holy Spirit. Will you do that now in this gathering over these people? And the noise of thousands and thousands of people being baptized in the Holy Spirit was absolutely incredible. And it was at this point, Chandra Kant grabbed me. He rushed me off the stage. He thrashed me through the car, through the crowd, threw me in the back of a car and drove me away from the conference. That evening in the house, he was talking with one of his brothers, one of his workers, and they were saying my name. They were in their language. Da, 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 Timothy. Ha, 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 ha. Da, 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 Timothy. Ha, 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 ha. And I'm just eating my food. And I said, are you, I, I, sorry, guys, are you talking about me? They said, oh, yes, we're talking about the conference. You see, we were allowed to have the conference so long as nobody preached the gospel. That was the rules of the, that was the, rules of the conference. Haha, <laughs> we didn't tell you that. In this Hindu state, anybody caught preaching the gospel and, and converting people will be shot on sight by the police. We didn't tell you that. <laughs> when you made the appeal, you did something that we don't normally do. You just asked people to stand, and then you asked more people to stand. But what you didn't know was the moment you started preaching the gospel, news went down to the local police station, and the police arrived to shoot you. And as they stood, they couldn't see you. And then when people got baptized in the Holy Spirit, it was so noisy, so chaotic, we had an opportunity to take you away. We didn't tell you that. Well, my head became the biggest head in the entire world. I've made it. This is what an evangelist does. I'm like Reinhard Bonke. I'm like Billy Graham. This is, this is it. This is what I thought it was. And I got back on that airplane. I flew back to the UK and I stood up in the church. And I said, Four and a half thousand people gave their lives to Jesus and were added into the church at one meeting that God used me in. Oh, my head was so big. I thought I didn't have to do anything else apart from wait for the next phone call for the next big gig to come along. I thought, I'll just wait because God's going to use me. This is it. This is what an evangelist does now. He stands in front of thousands and thousands, give their lives to Jesus. On my desk in front of me were some flyers for a little outreach that we were doing in Kefili, which is a little town just north of Cardiff. And I thought to myself, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. I'm the evangelist. Somebody else can deliver flyers. That's not me. I'm the big shot. That night I went home to bed and the Holy Spirit dealt with me in a very big way. <laughs> Taught me a lesson. I was very repentant in the morning. I woke up, my head down, saying sorry to the Lord for believing that I, it was all about me. 
but the evangelist isn't that person. And the Lord made sure that I was uh, truly sorry because that day was cold and it was raining. And I went out with a fistful of flyers knocking on doors in Kefili, telling people about Jesus and inviting them along to our little gathering in the town hall. Maybe this is what the evangelist is. Maybe this is what it is. We began to do little outreaches in, in the villages and towns up in the valleys. We knocked on 25,000 doors in the valleys. Most of those doors were slammed shut in our face. Most of the time, people said, we're not interested. Very few people turned up to our gatherings and our meetings, but we went all the same when we preached the gospel. We did everything that we possibly could. Maybe this is what the evangelist is. Maybe this is something. They began to read about healing, watching videos of, of, uh, of healing evangelists, the A.A. Allens, the... Um, uh, began reading books by F.F. F. Bosworth, A.W. Pink, evangelists from a long time ago who used to move in supernatural power and anointing and saw incredible miracles. I thought, maybe this is what the evangelist is. And so I began to read and read and read about healing and, and learning about healing and seeing healing and, and having, that, having the Holy Spirit add the ministry of healing into my life. And I thought, well, this, this must be what the evangelist could be. And I began to preach healing in the churches that I went to. And you know what? God started doing some amazing things. I was sat in my office one Sunday morning, and I was due to preach and, um, uh, downstairs, and I just didn't have a message. And I was sitting in my office, and I was just sitting there, and the Holy Spirit said, and I've still got it written on my wall. He said, you will see the miracles that you ask for. So I wrote it on, on, my, on my whiteboard. I didn't write it on the wall because I got in trouble for that. I wrote it on the whiteboard. You will see the miracles that you ask for. And then I began to talk about the miracles that I wanted to see, that I wanted to see blind eyes open, and that I wanted to see the, see the deaf have their hearing restored, that I wanted to see cripples being able to walk. I wanted to see cancers leave people's bodies. I wanted to see children set free from cancer. I want to see the disabled made whole. I want to see spines straightened up. And I, over and over and over, I began to call out all the different things that I wanted to see. And then there was a knock at the door, and my brother came in and said, Tim, we've got, uh, I need to let you know about something that's going to happen in the meeting this morning. I said, okay, tell me what it is. They said, one of the members of the church has been across at the hospital with one of their friends. Uh, they're not Christians, but their little boy, Dominic, um, is dying of cancer. The doctors have said there's nothing else that they can do. But William has said, we should bring him along to the meeting. So the hospital have given permission for them to take this baby off the different things, and, and they're going to bring the baby into the gathering. And I just want to let you know that, that, that if you see somebody in the, in the gathering, that's what's happening. I said, well, God's just said that we will see the miracles that we've asked for. And I just called and asked that we would see cancers leave from babies' bodies, from children's bodies. I said, there's only one reason that we're having the meeting this morning, and that's to pray for this little boy. So I went downstairs, and we began to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And at the end of the gathering, the mother brought this little baby forward, and I didn't have any words. I just know that the Lord says that we should lay hands upon the sick and that they would recover. And if that's the way that God's going to do the miracle, then I've just got to lay my hands on this little boy. And we just laid my hands on and sat silently for well, what felt like a very, very long time. And then I took my hands off him and I looked at his mother and I said, your little boy's going to be fine. And I was shocked. How could I let those words come out of my mouth with such confidence? This is where I learned something important. That's what the word of faith is. The word of faith is the supernatural removal of all doubts. 
Even for the person saying those words, they are surprised that they've said them themselves. It's a God moment. You can't just say to somebody who has cancer, you're going to be okay. But when God removes all doubt from you and those words come out of your mouth, well, I was surprised. On the following day, I flew to America, and I was in the church in Gilman in Illinois, and I was due to preach in the church on the Sunday, and I didn't have a word. I didn't have a message, and I sat there all week saying, Lord, what do you want me to say to these people? What do you want me to say to these people? And on the Saturday evening, a text message came through from my wife. She'd had it. uh, William, the member of the church, had sent her a message, and it said this. Dear Joe, please can you pass a message on to Tim? Dominic went back into hospital after the meeting. He is now free of cancer, and the doctors have sent him home. His parents have have both given their lives to Jesus, and this boy, it is a miracle, this boy has been healed. Isn't that amazing? It took a week for them to run all of the tests because the doctors started to see an improvement in him where there, wasn't going, there shouldn't be an improvement. And so they ran and reran the tests over and over. And all the time, this little boy was getting better and better and better to the point that now he was going home. Well, I was over the moon. I knew what I had to preach to the church that week. In fact, I knew what I was going to preach to all the churches in America and in Canada. In fact, all I was going to do was tell that testimony, read out that text and make an appeal. And do you know what? God did amazing things. People started coming forward. We saw healings. We saw deaf people uh, have, the, have the hearing restored. We saw blind people having their eyesight restored. We saw people getting out of wheelchairs. We saw lots and lots of people being healed. And most importantly, loads and loads of people saved. Perhaps this is what the evangelist is. Maybe. Maybe. I still preach healing. I still preach the power of God to save. I've been in Myanmar. We've seen 5,000 people give their lives to Jesus. We saw cripples walking. We saw blind seeing. We saw deaf hearing. We saw cancers just leaving people's bodies. We saw demons fleeing. I still preach healing. I still preach the full gospel. And people give their lives to Jesus. But is that what the evangelist is? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. I spent a lot of time in Cardiff reading books on evangelism and evangelistic methods. I needed to equip the church so that they could go and do these things that I, well, not necessarily do the things that I was doing, but to to be able to reach out to their friends, their neighbors, their school colleagues, everybody. We created programs and initiatives. We created uh, outreaches that we could get the whole church involved with. And they did, and it was hard, hard work to mobilize these people, to get them outward focused and re- looking at their neighbors as the harvest field. And it, would t- it, took, it took a year, it took maybe a year and a half for this momentum to begin. But then slowly but surely, people in the church began to take over the projects and take over the work and take over the initiatives. And my job became less and less and less. Maybe that's what the evangelist is all about. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, I travel a lot nowadays. I see lots of people saved. Um, Lots of people saved in different places. But sometimes I go to places and I don't see people saved at all. I can preach and preach and preach and nobody will respond to the gospel. But then I leave and then I, uh, I can be traveling for a few more days and then I get a phone call from that pastor and he says, you know what, since you've left, lots of people are giving their lives to Jesus. I think, oh, praise God, hallelujah. Why didn't it happen when I was there? Lots of people have given their lives to Jesus. Maybe that's what the evangelist is. Maybe just the anointing of being present in a room and leaves a deposit of the anointing behind is enough for the church to be, to be equipped. Maybe people, the anointing of the evangelist being present in this place would lead people 
to, to come and seek Jesus as their Lord and Savior? I don't know. Maybe that's what the evangelist is. I don't know. But that's what happens sometimes. I'm not on that page on this one. I've met lots of evangelists too. And none of them are the same as me. Every evangelist that I've met is different, working in a different way, doing a different thing, has a different viewpoint in, a diff- in, in, diff- in, in different things. All of us see salvations. That's a given in some way, shape, or form. But you can't put any of us into a box to say, oh, that's what an evangelist is. That's what an evangelist is. But then one day I was reading in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, and God spoke to me about the gifts, all the gifts, including the gift of the evangelist. So let's have a look. We'll read it. It's a big bit. Have you got a Bible? We should use the Bible. Teaching gifts and it all be there. There we go. I'm going to, for the benefit of the tape, Tim is using the Bible. We are go for Bible. 1 Samuel 13. I'm going to read quite a chunk of it. In fact, I'm probably going to read to the end of 14 as well. Um, but I want, I want to pull some stuff out for you. So we'll have a look. 1 Samuel 13, and we'll go from verse um, 7b. Seven B says this. Meanwhile, Saul stayed in Gilgal, and his men were trembling in fear. Saul's being a, Saul is the king of Israel, and his army's being attacked by the, the Philistines and all these different people. So his armies, were, his men were trembling in fear. Saul waited there for seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier. But Samuel didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, "Bring me the burnt offering." And the peace offering. And Saul sacrificed the, sacrificed the burnt offerings himself. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet and welcome him. But Samuel said, what is this that you've done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me. And you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready uh, to march against us. And I haven't even asked the Lord's help. So I felt obliged to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have disobeyed the command of the Lord your God. Had you obeyed, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your dynasty must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already chosen him to be king over his people, for you have not obeyed the Lord's command. Samuel then left Gilgal and went on his way. But the rest of the troops went with Saul to meet the army. They, were up, they went up from Gilgal to Gibeth to the land of Benjamin. When Saul counted the men they were, that were still with him, he had about, well, he had only 600 left. Saul and Jonathan and the troops with them were staying at Geber near Gibeth in the land of Benjamin. The Philistines set up their camp in Michmesh. Three raiding parties soon left the camp of the Philistines. One went north to Ophrah in the land of Shual. Another went west to Beth, Beth Horan. And the third moved to the border above the valley of Zeboim near the wilderness. There were no blacksmiths in the land of Israel in those days. The Philistines wouldn't allow them for fear that they would make swords and spears for the Hebrews. So whenever the Israelites needed to sharpen their plowshares, picks, axes, or sickles, they had to take them to the Philistines, to the Philistine blacksmith, 
where they were charged lots of money. So none of the people of Israel had a sword or a spear except for Saul and Jonathan. The pass at Michmash had meanwhile been secured by a contingent of Philistine, of the Philistine army. One day, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come on, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan didn't tell his father what he was doing. Meanwhile, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeth, relaxing around the pomegranate tree in Migron. I'm going to skip down a couple of verses. No one realized, down to verse 3b, no one realized that Jonathan had left the Israelite camp. To reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs that were called Bozes and Senna. The cliff on the north was in front of Michmesh, and on the, on the south was, was in front of Geber. Let's go down and see those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle, whether it has many warriors or only a few. Do what you think is best, the youth replied. I am with you completely, whatever you decide. All right then, Jonathan told him. We will cross over and we will cross over and let them see us. If they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, then we'll stop and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come on up and fight, then we'll go up. That will be the Lord's sign that he will help us defeat them. When the Philistines saw them, they saw them coming, they shouted, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Then they shouted to Jonathan, come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. Come on. Climb right behind me, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. So they climbed up using both hands and feet, and the Philistines fell back, uh, fell, fell back as Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them right and left. They killed about 20 men in all, and their bodies were scattered over half an acre. Suddenly, panic broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and the raiding parties, and just then, an earthquake struck and everybody was terrified. Saul's lookouts in Gibeth saw a strange sight. The vast army of Philistines began to melt away in every direction. Find out who isn't here, Saul ordered. And when they checked, they found that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Then Saul shouted to Aja, bring the ephod here. For at that time, Aja was wearing the ephod in front, of, in front of the Israelites. But while Saul was talking to the priests, the shouting and confusion in the Philistine camp grew louder and louder. So Saul said to Aija, never mind, let's go. Then Saul and his 600 men rushed out to battle and found the Philistines killing each other. There was terrible confusion everywhere. Even the Hebrews who had gone over to the Philistine army revolted and joined in with Saul and Jonathan and the rest of the Israelites. Likewise, the men who were hiding in the hills joined the chase when they saw the Philistines running away. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle continued to rage even out beyond Ben-Heaven. There were two things wrong with Saul's army. The first thing that was wrong was complacency. Saul was sat under a pomegranate tree resting when he was surrounded by a well-armed enemy. And they just kind of had given up on the situation. They had no weapons left. The army had taken all of those. They, they'd rather just pay the enemy 
uh, to sharpen their plowshares and, and just hoped that, the, that they could stay where they were and it, what they weren't going to get uh, taken over. They would just pay for the privilege not to be attacked. You know, the church can be like that. I walk into some places and, some, and churches and people will say to me, oh, your methods won't work in this town. You don't know what the people are like in this town. It's so hard in this town. I've tried talking to my neighbor in this time. Oh, yes, oh, you, you want us to knock on doors? Oh, we've done that. We, we knocked on doors 20 years ago. It didn't work. Oh, you want us to do an, an, an invitation to the meeting? Oh, we've tried that. They, they just won't come. It's hard here. We'll, we, it, it, those, mes- those methods just won't work here. We've tried everything. It doesn't work. What they've done in those places is they've become complacent in trying in, in, instead of trying to advance, they've chosen to sit in a holy huddle. They're singing love songs to God in a holy huddle and, uh, and holding on as though they were the very last ones in town. We won't invite the evangelist in because do you know what he's going to do? He's going to make us go out and tell people about Jesus. And this town, they don't want to know about Jesus. We're the only ones left. It's too hard to reach this town. Have you spoke to my uncle? Have you seen my cousin? They don't want to know Jesus. I've tried. I've asked them to come to the meeting, but they won't come. It's too hard. We'll just sing our love songs in our holy huddle, and we won't go outside. It's too hard here. We've come, become too comfortable. We'll just let the enemy surround us and be out there, and we'll just be in here. Complacency. The second problem that Saul had was unbelief. Unbelief that the promises of God were true and that they would still work if they would just stand on them. You see, the, Saul's army was the army of God. Saul's army had all the promises of God behind them. But their unbelief, when they saw the enemy, caused them to melt away. Caused them to run and hide in holes and in caves and in, in tombs. Their unbelief in the promises of God caused them to be disillusioned with what was going on. And what disillusionment leads to is abandonment and exit. In the stories, like I said, they took over the caves. They ran away from Saul. And some of them even went over to the enemy's side. They were so disillusioned with the army that they were in, they said, you know what, we're not going to be a part of this anymore. We're going to join the other side and we're going to attack you instead. In church... Unbelief in God's promises can do the same thing. When we don't see all our family instantly healed and saved, or a huge influx of people from our outreach events coming in, unbelief can come in instead. They can shy away from from doing anything and instead just hide in the building, hide in their homes, hide on the streets. Some even end up becoming so disillusioned that they walk away from the church, they leave altogether. All the promises, they forget about the promises. They just see a group of people and they think, I don't want to be here anymore. They talk a good talk, but nothing's happening. I'm going to leave. And they walk away. Their unbelief turns to bitterness. And in some cases, it turns into negativity towards the church that they were a part of. Jonathan is like the evangelist. In fact, I believe every ministry that you have coming in here who stands before you, a ministry of Christ, will be just like Jonathan. I'm going to turn my page over now. Thank you. First of all, 
We believe in the promises of God. I believe in the promises of God. I believe in the promises of God so much that if they didn't work, I'm willing to die. Look at what happened with Jonathan. Do you see what he did? He said to his armor bearer, let's go over there and stand. Let's make ourselves visible because God had made a promise to Israel. God had made a promise to them that he would never leave them or let them down. Jonathan knew this. He promised them that if they were bold and courageous, he, God would be with them. He promised them that wherever they would lay their feet, they would have the land in front of them. So he was saying, look, let's just go over there and let's stand on God's promise. And if God is going to deliver us, then we'll have the victory. But you see what he says? He says, if they say, stay there and we'll come down to you, he doesn't say, we'll just stand here and then we'll fight. There's no point fighting if God's promises aren't true. You may as well just let the enemy come and chop your head off. He goes, he says, I'm going to stand there. I'm going to stand on God's promise. I'm going to let the enemy see me. And if they say, come up here, then I'm going to go up there and I'm going to kill them all. He believed in the promises. We believe in the promises to the point where we're willing to die for them. I'm so convinced in the promises of God. I'm so convinced that I'm willing to stand on the possibility. I'm willing to stand in the possibility. And I'll stand and say, you know, Jesus will save you. Jesus can change your life. Jesus can and will heal you. The promises that he makes to us are true in the word. And if you'll just take them, believe them, and stand on them, then they will become a reality for you. Because God will never let you down. God will never leave you. He's 100% for you all of the time. You don't need to be afraid about going and talking to your next door neighbor about Jesus because God's with you. You don't need to be afraid about laying your hands on a sick person and thinking maybe it won't work. If you go with the belief of the promise that we will lay hands upon the sick, then they will recover. God will do it for you. Do you believe? The gifts believe. The evangelists believe. We believe in the promises of God, and we will stand on those promises even if it means that we ourselves are attacked and even to death. That's what the evangel evangelist does. That's what a ministry of Christ does. And secondly, evangelists, they're not complacent. We know where the enemy is. We know how big his army is. We know how loud his, uh, his bark is. We know what weapons he's got, got, but we know that our God is bigger our God is stronger, and our God will give us the victory regardless of whatever it is that we face. The results is that when the gifts move and when we stand on the promises of God, we see victory wherever we go. We can go into nations, any nation of the world. It doesn't matter what, who, who's in charge. We can go into any nation of the world, and we can declare the kingdom come, and we know, you know what? The kingdom of God will come because God is bigger than the situation that we're facing. You, saw, you were at World Watch. You saw Belarus, you saw Ukraine, you saw evangelists standing, you saw ministries of Christ standing and saying, it doesn't matter what's coming our way, the, the kingdom is advancing, the church is growing, and people are being saved. For me, that's people being saved. I want to see more people saved. For the pastoral gifts, it might be something else. For the prophetic gifts, it might be something else. For the apostolic gifts, it might be something else, but we're all going to go the same way. We're not going to be complacent. We're going to be the example that can stand in front of you 
in front of the church and say, we're standing on the promises. Now get out of your seat. Let's go. We're going to win the victory for Jesus. We're going to see changes all of the way. You know, jo, jo, um, for Jonathan, I want to see people saved. For Jonathan, he wanted to see 20, people's, 20 people killed in the, in the battlefield. And the effects of people being saved in the church or the effects that, 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 uh, that Jonathan had with his just 20 people was that the enemy had to flee, that the church would rise up and start witnessing again, that the church would start, go, start going out on the streets again, that the church would be bold in telling people about Jesus again and seeing the same results that I will see wherever I go. That the army of Israel would see the same result that Jonathan saw just by being bold and going on the promises of God. You can see the same results for yourself in this town as well. That's what the evangelist is here to do. That's what we're here to do. Oh, a bit sweaty now. Do you know, if you'll just capture this, believe in the promises. Don't be complacent. Not only will you see new fruit, new harvest, new people coming in, but you'll see the ones that went away, the ones that left, the ones that have abandoned. The prodigals will come back as well, just like Jonathan did. The armies of Israel that had abandoned them, that had hidden away, they came out of their holes, they came out of the caves, and they rejoined the fight. The ones that even went on to the opposite opposition time, they changed their heart, they repented and came back to join the army. And it's the same here in this church. It's the same here for, the, for you as well. Not only new people, but the prodigals will come home too. If you'll just believe in the promises and not be complacent. That's what the evangelist does. The evangelist... We believe in God's promises. Even if others doubt, even if it looks impossible, we'll take action. We'll go. I will go. I was listening to a song. I was bawling my eyes out driving up because I listened to it about 50 times over and over and over again. Because it was, oh, the chorus was, I'll go for you, Lord. I'll go for you. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. And I kept singing that song because, yeah, wherever you want me to go, I'll go. Even unto death, we'll go. To the nations will go. To the darkness will go. To my neighbor I'll go because I need to stand on the promise. I can't be complacent. I've got to see people changed. I've got to see the promises of God work. And I've got to see the church come alive for revival. Do you believe in revival? I believe in revival. So I, I think that's what an evangelist is. So I'm going to close with an encouraging scripture for you. All, they're all encouraging, I think. It's the only Bible verse I learned when I was in, prime, in, um, in, in Sunday school. I was a very naughty boy in Sunday school, and the reason I was naughty was because I wasn't a Christian. Okay, I was four, four, we were, you, you know, nobody is born a Christian, okay? I was dragged into, into Sunday school, but this, this lady, Esther, uh, Tina Spicer was her name, is her name, she's still alive. The only Bible verse she ever sent taught me, and it's this. Be bold and courageous. Students, listen. Be bold and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because God is with you and he will never leave you and he will never, ever, ever, ever let you down. You don't need to be bold in front of an enemy. You don't need to be courageous in front of an enemy because the enemy is already dust beneath your feet. You need to be bold in the way that you approach the throne of God. You need to be courageous in holding up the promises before him of what he says that you can do. 
And you do not need to be afraid when you do that because he'll tell you that I am with you. I am for you and I'll never leave you or let you down. Students, do not be afraid this week. Everybody, do not be afraid this week of what you face. God is with you. God is for you. You can take the streets of Southport. You can take the workplaces of Southport. You can take your university halls. You can take the cities. You can take the villages. You can take the whole surrounding area and beyond if you'll go. If you'll stand on the promises and never, ever, ever give up. I have three questions for you in my finishing because after this, I'm going to leave here and I'm just going to go and stand somewhere else on the promises of God and I'm going to see the enemy collapse. But I have three questions. The first question is this. Are you a Christian? Are you living a Christian life? If you are, Wonderful. The second question is not for you. The second question is this. Do you want to be a Christian? Do you want to give your life to Jesus and have it completely transformed? If you do, wonderful. If you don't, then the third question isn't for you. Because the third question is this. Will you give your life to Jesus now? I don't know who's in this room. I don't know how many people here are saved or even walking with the Lord. But you can give your life to Jesus right now in this place, and I promise you this, he will radically transform it. Your life will never, ever, ever be the same again. God will move into your house, move into your life, and he will transform it. So my appeal to you this morning is this. If you want to give your life to Jesus at the close of this meeting, please, please, please come and talk to me, and I'll introduce you to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and your life will never be the same again. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for these great people in Southport. I want to thank you for their heart and their mission. I want to thank you, Lord, that they're going to reach out and they're going to change this town and this city and the regions beyond. Bless them in the work that they're doing. Lord, let a wave of healing and health be found in this community. Let them know a winter of no sickness, only a winter of strength and wholeness. Lord, as they talk to their friends and their neighbors, let them find um, fertile soil in which to sow the seeds of your gospel. Lord, the nation needs you more now than ever, and they're looking for answers. The world is not providing them with the answer, but you are the only one. I thank you, Lord, that as we go from this place, you will be, the, you will be on our lips, you will be in our hands, and you will be in our feet, and we will stand for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Thank you a lot so much for coming along. If you're going to be out this evening to hear more stories and more tales, come along. We'll talk about healing and miracles and signs and wonders. If you have any friends that are unsaved and you want to bring them along to hear some crazy guy telling them about crazy stuff, bring them along. But if you need to give your life to Jesus, please don't leave this room. I'm not going to embarrass you and make you put your hand in the air or make you walk to the front. But if you need to give your life to Jesus please just come and speak to me down here at the front while everybody else is going off for their tea and coffee and it will be the best decision you've made in your life. Amen. 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 Amen.